Alright, okay. Hey everybody. Welcome to the show tonight. We are coming to you live. Coming to you live on a Wednesday. It is now Wednesday. I was, I've been waiting for this day since uh, last Wednesday. <laughs> I feel like I've said it's, it's Wednesday five times since then. But uh, tonight is actually Wednesday, and it is the final day of November 2022. Tomorrow is a the last month of the year begins. And although I have no uh, new guests to announce tonight, except Judge Joe Brown tomorrow night on December 1st and Shane Cashman on uh, December 13th, I'm going to have a lot of things to announce tomorrow. I, I spent a good portion of the late afternoon emailing people for bookings and getting all of my, especially the Christmas programming and holiday programming in line. Want to get? I want to get focused on what is going to be live all throughout the Christmas weekend on the on the network, which is going to be a Saturday and a Sunday. So that's going to be great. Um, so I'm just I'm just in full gear with all this, and I, I like soaking up this month. We have to because it goes way too fast, and I know that you're supposed to bring that magic and that reflection and that. Um, all that reverence into the new year, but you know how it is. It's a it's a big emotional roller coaster, and sometimes you just feel let down and hung over when it's all done because you just it, it's just a I don't know. It's just it's just so good. It just feels so good. So starting tomorrow, we are really really savoring every sip. Tonight we have Professor Robin McCutcheon coming back on the show. It's the first time she's been on in a couple of months. We always love when she's on. And uh, I want to ask her a couple of questions. First of all, I have an article I want to read before she gets on about this uh, a, a mother who spent a pretty penny having her daughter's mind deprogrammed after she suffered what can only be described as brainwashing on the university American college level as we know that's just what it is but uh, the deprogramming worked apparently so I'm going to talk about that and I would love to hear what Robin has to say and then I want to get I want to get some history of Black Friday when did it come up when did we start knowing it as Black Friday you know obviously it's a big economic uh, I dare I call it a holiday but it's an economic day phenomenon and she's a uh, professor of of economics and a uh, student of history over there at Marshall University. So I cannot wait to hear about that. We'll be able to talk about more. There's a really great thing. Well, it's it's kind of scary when you when you reflect on the reality of it all. But Mike Rowe had done a interview with Tucker Carlson not too long ago, and I was saving this article for when Robin came on. And Mike Rowe is talking about the collapse of the American work ethic, not so much the the, the, the a jobless um, how people are unemployed because there's plenty of jobs out there. There's something else going on spiritually inside of us all, as you can see. And I, I want to talk about that, too, because I think Robin will have something else to say. In the second half of the show, I got some extra thoughts on the Kanye Milo storyline. And it'll offer up some new questions about what may or may not have been going on at TimCast the other night. Although most of my other 
comments about how show production, how show production and, and hosting uh, was that that that'll remain pretty much unchanged. But there's other there's weirdness going on right now. And other questions that I kept asking myself about why, why the stand up and go and what the hell is this? Uh, and really, it, w- it went back to the Thanksgiving Mar-a-Lago dinner. What the hell is this little threesome out there doing with, uh, you know, uh, in Mar-a-Lago who th- that could only do damage, only do damage to Donald Trump, only could ever do damage. What is it really all about? Well, I have some some things to read to you, some things to ponder, and I even got a a really great email from a listener of the show that I just I can't wait to read onto the into the record. So tomorrow we have good stuff going on. Tonight we have great stuff going on. Friday, well, I don't know. I don't know what we're gonna do. It's gonna be good. I might pack a hookah on Friday night because it's going to be just like wow. This weekend, this week was great. It was a great week so far. Although you know what, what wasn't very nice. I just got a FaceTime call from Lauren, and it was 6.45, so I knew it was the last couple of minutes before Aurora, you know, she just washes off, and all. it's not a bath night tonight, so she washes off, and, and she's going to lay down and, with Lauren on the couch, and they're going to read a couple of her stories, and then, okay, into bed, and boom, put her down and walk out. She flips over and goes to sleep, but she called me up, and I thought it was just going to be a happy call. Hi, Daddy, whatever. And she looked, she had the lower, the lower lip pouting and quivering and all that stuff. And I was, see daddy, I want to see. That's the first time she pulled the, I want to see daddy stuff. And my heart cracked, just cracked. So I had to, you know, talk about other things and ask her questions and, and do a silly face contest and all that stuff. And, and everything was, was all right, but. Man, don't be surprised if in the future there comes a couple of nights here where I don't have a guest on and I just say, you know what, I'm canceling the show. We're going to play a rerun on the network and I'm going to stay home to to be there to put her to bed because that is going to get really, really painful. Just telling you. Um all right. Well, I, I would just say for my sponsors and I go to the affiliates page. People are buying the, quite frankly, Jester cigars from Lefty Cigars, left and right. I heard about that. That's fantastic. Go out and get your, quite frankly, daily roast coffee, the medium roast coffee. The, I think we're going to lighten that up sometime in the new year. That is, uh, you can click through that on the website. That's done by riseandgrind.us. That's Nordic Coffee. But uh, also remember that Blue Monster Prep, their, their Cyber Monday deals, that ends tonight. So go to bluemonsterprep.com. Use promo code FRANKLY almost everywhere on the affiliates page. All of my friends and uh, affiliates have, have set nice things up for you guys at home, whether it be chocolates or pre-rolled CBD. Uh, it doesn't matter. It's all there. Go check them out. Woodworking. We've got wonderful things. You got to get into gear for Christmas, so go check it out, please. All right. Are you ready to go into the grab bag with me? I hope so. Here we go. First thing up. Oh, that's my Christmas cafe. I'm sorry. First thing up is this. Did you know that every monk in a Thai temple has been defrocked 
after testing positive for meth. Now, I don't know about you, but nothing gets me ready to meditate like some meth. A Buddhist temple in central Thailand has been left without monks. <laughs> we are completely out of monks. I'm sorry. After all of its holy men failed drug tests and were defrocked, a local official said on Tuesday. Four monks, including an abbot, at a temple in uh, some province in Bung Sam Phan district, tested positive for methamphetamine on Monday. I heard it was that, that, that blue stuff. The district official, Boonlert Thin Patai, told AFP. The monks have been sent to a health clinic to undergo drug rehabilitation. The temple is now empty of monks, and nearby villagers are concerned they cannot do any merit-making. Merit-making involves worshiping uh, worshippers donating food to monks as a good deed. Boonlert said more monks will be sent to the temple to allow villagers to practice their religious obligations. Thailand is a major transit country for methamphetamine flooding in from Myanmar's troubled Shan state via Laos. So, um, now my thing is, did the meth get into the sewage and they just drank it all? Or was everybody in that temple just raging out of their minds on meth? And how do you convince all the monks to try it? There was not one that said, no, brothers, we mustn't do this. How did you get all? That's why I thought, well, was the water contaminated? How did you get every last one to jump on? I... Anyway, that happened. Now you want to hear some shit? President Zelensky, over there in Ukraine, he said that the restoration of Ukraine will have to attract more than $1 trillion. Um, Some reporting has said $3 trillion as much. Uh, That's what he's asking for here. That's the complete rebuilding of Ukraine. Ukrainian President Zelensky has estimated the cost of rebuilding the country at more than one trillion. Kiev intends to involve Western countries in this process. No. Ugh. God, I wish I wish my word was enough. Transferring regions and cities under their patronage. Now, here's the thing. The total amount work is more than a trillion dollars, Zelensky said, presenting the candidacy of Odessa to host Expo 2030. What is that? The World's Fair. Here he, I, I, I cannot believe it. Here is an Oscar-winning comedian now saying that Ukraine will hopefully be a host of the World's Fair in 2030, the, the big year. 2030 okay agenda 2030 everything revolves around 2030 and 2050 so the fact that this complete beggar drug addict stooge intelligence plant stooge is out there saying i want the world's fair to be here in 2030 a major a major jump off date for globalists out there and their vision for the great reset and that he needs a trillion dollars or more to do so. This is real. You can watch him. So hold on. I'm honored to present. I'm going to lower his voice. 
I'm honored to present the U Ukraine's candidate for hosting the World Fair of 2030 to present Odessa and the entire Black Sea region. Why Odessa? Why Ukraine? Why the Black Sea? I don't know. I don't know. But let's get around to the... Let's get around to the... Here you go. Okay. Even now, we engage dozens of our partner countries to rebuild Ukraine. The total volume of work amounts to over a trillion dollars. That's That's right. Rebuild yourself. You ruined yourself, so rebuild yourself. Then again, I mean, I mean, you can ask a trillion dollars. I don't know. Go sell drugs with your friends in the CIA. That's a couple of trillion right there. At least leave the taxpayers alone. If you're all, if you're going to go off and you're going to create your own, your own world in the shadows with 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 unaccounted for money, then just leave taxpayers alone for whatever for however long we have our currency, because you know. Who knows by 2030 how, how much we're going to have left of our cash, uh, if we're going to be in some, some kind of a transition process, if we're, all, we're gonna be already going to be all digital by then. You just never know. And at that time, think about how easy it will be to just create a trillion dollars of uh, funny digital money out of nowhere when we have no reserves as it is and just send it to people. Oh, then, then it's really going to get bad. Then it's really going to get bad. So that happened. Here's Elizabeth Warren. Um, here's a little Elizabeth Warren. I, I don't even know what to make of this. She had a Fox, I think it's Fox News, or somebody get in touch with her. She's walking through the hallways in Washington, D.C. And ask, she's getting asked questions about Elon Musk, to which she answers that no one should be able to go into a dark room alone and make decisions about how we all communicate, which is, it's very puzzling, but take a listen to what she says. Republicans say that um, Democrats are picking on Elon Musk. Elon Musk is doing just fine. But do you think that users have a right to freedom of speech, even if what they're saying is wrong or offensive? I think that one human being should not decide how millions of people communicate with each other. I think that we should kick all of the women out of government all the women out of at least Congress for now. You know what? You know, <laughs> I'm going to piss some people off with this, but just just try to take it as lightly as you can. You know, when Donald Trump said, I, I think we should stop. We should stop all refugees from from uh, war torn Middle East Muslim countries. We should pause everything just until we figure out what's going on. I think that we should kick all women out of Congress first and then slowly start letting them back in so that we can at least filter out the uh, the Elizabeth Warrens. Then we kick out all the men, all right? Then we, then we kick out all the men. If we're going to prioritize this, I think it's first, I think the crazy has really, really the overbearing, crazy, hovering, stalking butler type personalities those that have really burrowed themselves into the uh, the female representation in our Congress. So if we all can just agree that everybody in government, practically everybody is rotten in Congress, let's let's just start where the problems really are, have manifested worst first, and get all them out. 
and then start filtering them back in. I don't know what kind of cognitive tests we can put out there, uh, civics tests, whatever. And then we throw out all the men and we, st we, we start there. That's just how I would prioritize this. Uh, here, so here is a crazy camp counselor woman, Elizabeth Warren, um, telling, saying something so ironic given how her party conducts probes and impeachment proceedings in 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 secretive skiffs with with faceless accusers whose whistleblower testimony is only ever accepted after you change the criteria for what a whistleblower is to include third and fourth hand hearsay this is exactly this is the irony of the whole thing but listen to what she says should not decide how millions of people, that one human being should not decide how millions of people communicate with each other one human being should not be able to go into a dark room by himself and decide oh that person gets heard from that person doesn't <laughs> what are you fucking talking about first of all why is the room that elon gone into why is it so dark why did Elon go into the dark room to make his decision? <laughs> it's just, this is, this is camp counselor story time. This is camp counselor story time. How do we make this scary? One person shouldn't go into a dark room to decide who can say something and who can't. When objectively, thus far, Elon Musk has made it easier for people to communicate. This is an objective thing as of right now. He has made it easier for people to communicate. The only thing that has ever, that's it. Leftists, all of their celebrities, their A-listers, their B-listers, their C-listers, all of them, their double D-listers, they're, they're taking themselves off the platform. They're not getting kicked off. This is insane. Who, who is being told they can say what well, you can be heard from and you can't? It's the exact opposite, but she's nuts. She's nuts. Like, like pretty much all of her colleagues. Anyway, um, somebody in the chat room just said that she is 1 1024th sane. That's good. That's good. Oh, boy. Jeez. So, I mean, this every day, there's something else. Uh, here's another little something. I just thought I'd throw this in here because, you know, work ethic and what people are doing in the, at the workplace is going to be a part of our discussions tonight. Here's a headline from the New York Post from last week. The headline is, my boss, my boss doesn't like my face piercings. Not even necessarily that, oh, you have a diamond stud, but your ears are gauged out, your lips are pierced, your whole face is riddled with, with iron. My boss doesn't like my face piercings. What should I do? I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. You can act like a man. What's the matter with you? Is this how you turn down a Hollywood Pinocchio that uh, cries like a woman? <laughs> what can I do? What can I do? You take your you take your damn piercings out, and you 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 do a job. I just don't get it. I don't get it. I'm I'm sure plenty of employers would not like my tattoos. I would make sure that I dressed appropriately. 
It's going to be pretty hot on some days if I have to wear long sleeves, if I have to work in an office, but I'm going to do what I have to do if you want to be gainfully employed. But this whole my identity, my, the metal in my face is part of my identity. Ugh, freaks. I got a couple of small face piercings. My employer said that I had to remove them, otherwise I could lose my job. I've always been rated a top performer, so how does my face piercings have anything to do with my ability to do my job? Can they do this? It's not about your performance, it's about th there's, there's certain standards and, and codes in the workplace. And it's just stop it, just stop this. Should you be allowed to come to the, the, the office naked? I run a bodega and one of my workers grabs a soda from the display case and a newspaper and, and, uh, and reads it in the basement on his break. Sometimes he returns the papers to the newsstand and other times they are left in the basement. I don't want to appear cheap and so and it's so hard to find help but he is technically stealing my products. How do you suggest I handle this? Well, now this is another problem because you know, as, as an employer, you are completely hamstrung as to how you can run your business because it's civil rights this, civil rights that, and really it's all about destroying private property rights, okay? Now, what's, what's funny is you would not be able to tell them, you know what, can you, can you not read the newspaper and, and drink soda that you're not paying for in the basement? I may have to let you go if you keep doing this. You can't do that most places because then you'll have some kind of a wrongful termination suit thrown your way and then even if you win it you're still spending thousands of dollars in court and um and on the other hand you could just as easily fire everybody you've ever hired if they don't take a certain government injection that's not a civil right violation at all you can ask everybody who walks through the doors if they've had one shot or another uh, you know, medical information, whatever that that has been totally normalized. But to be able to tell somebody who's stealing from you very casually every day, to even have this kind of anxiety inside of you, you know, it's because to be a uh, a property owner, a business owner, it's certainly taken some hits. Your ability to be that business owner has taken quite a few hits from the uh, the own nothing and be happy Bolsheviks. All right, we'll be right back at 7.15. I have a few things to do to set the table for Robin McCutcheon. It should be a great night. Don't go anywhere. Happy to have you along. All the live links have been shared across my socials, so please syndicate the show. Be my sponsor on social media tonight and get it on out there, and I'll see you on the other side of the intro. and stand up to us, then they all might stand up. Those puny little ants outnumber us a hundred to one. And if they ever figure that out, there goes our way of life. It's not about food. It's about keeping those ants in line. That's why we're going back. Does anybody else want to stay? Let's ride!
I am. I, uh, I, I'm sorry to everybody that usually watches on Rockfin, but there's something going on with Rockfin tonight. Uh, it took forever for me to load the page. Finally, I was able to get it up, and now it's taking forever. To, and I see people in the chat room saying that they're having similar issues with the whole platform. So we're not going to be live on Rockfin tonight, but we are live everywhere else. Um, I don't know if it's going to be starting this month or starting off in the new year from January whatever onward. But we are going to split the show on YouTube in half and um, and do second hour everywhere but because that our, our exodus from these platforms really needs to continue to happen. Um, one of, oh, the other thing I had I wanted to tell you is it was very nice last night. I had finished all my work, my secondary work. You know, I get home, I eat, I spend uh, an hour or so with Lauren, we watched you know, we watch a show or something like that. Just talk, hang out. Then she goes to bed around 10, 30, 10 o'clock, whatever it is. And then I get back to work. I'm downloading. I'm uploading. I'm getting all the podcasts out to where they have to be. So people who listen in the morning or late night, it's already there for them. And around 11, 30, 12 o'clock is when my day finally ends. And that's when I go, all right, let's shower up. Let's get ready for the new day. So now I'll put on some I'll put on the radio, I'll put on a podcast, whatever. I was so, imagine my delight last night when I turn on Ground Zero with Clyde Lewis and there's this buildup. He's talking a little bit about Balenciaga and there is this buildup toward their guest and the guest was John Paul Rice. It was so great. So I, I uh, messaged him on Twitter. I said, oh man, imagine my shock, my delight. So, um, but that's when I, I reminded him that we have to definitely get him back in December to do a Frank Capra night. So, that'll be a fun one. Talk a little bit about It's a Wonderful Life, cut up some of the more, the, the key scenes, analyze it, especially from a filmmaking perspective and storytelling. I think that should be a really great way to enhance the, the run-up to Christmas. All right, all right, all right. Um... Let's see. All right, here's the thing I wanted to do with you all. Now, the, this is a story I think is really something else. And our guest, Robin, will be able to, to speak on it very well, I think. The headline from Fox News. This was a few days ago. Mother of a New York City heiress paid deprogrammer big bucks after daughter was brainwashed by college's woke agenda. Annabella Rockwell blames Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts for indoctrination. New York City pharmaceutical heiress Annabella Rockwell is claiming that her mother paid a $300 a day deprogrammer after believing her daughter had been brainwashed by attending an all-female elite liberal college that left the young women totally indoctrinated and estranged from parents who raised her. This is how you create more Elizabeth Warrens, by the way. And it's probably Elizabeth Warrens making these girls that way. Um, 
I left school very anxious, very nervous, very depressed and sad. Rockwell, now 29 years old, recently told the New York Post, I saw everything through the lens of oppression and bias and victimhood. I came to the school as someone who saw everyone equally. I left looking for injustice wherever I could and automatically assuming that all white men were sexist. Uh, My thoughts were no longer my own. Rockwell, a former competitive figure skater who grew up on the Upper East Side, told the Post that at first she was elated to attend Mount Holyoke College, a $60,000 a year women's institution in rural Massachusetts in 2011. Unlike other first-year students, she said she did not participate in the Moho Chop, an initiation ritual meant to shrug off gender roles by cutting one's hair. By her junior year, however, Rockwell told the Post that she had noticed a shift in herself after taking a gender studies class. Oh, it's so sad how many people never get out. This professor tells me about the patriarchy, Rockwell said. I barely knew what the word meant. I didn't know what she was talking about. I wasn't someone uh, that was that into feminism. I just knew that I felt I had always been free to do what I wanted. I never experienced sexism, but I was told there is a patriarchy and you don't even understand it's been working against you your whole life. You've been oppressed and you don't even know it. Now you have to fight it. And I just went down this deep rabbit hole. That's when she said her relationship with her mother, whom she once considered a best friend, changed. Quote, I felt I had to teach her how she was wrong and expose her and how to do uh, that with everyone who didn't see things correctly. This is what I was talking about with um, with the grooming scenario. Uh, it, it's it's part of the whole group. Obviously, these are older, older um, you know, young adults. They're not children anymore when you're 18, 19, 20. But you're talking about children who are being saddled with these kinds of social wokeisms as young as five six seven years old and many of them are just carrying the burdens of 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 how invalid their crazy ass teachers who should be locked away in padded rooms are interacting and really treating children as if they're peers instead of children to be taught basic arithmetic and uh, and logic but um, the, the other thing that happens is when you send these children home, it, it, it brings a choice to the front door of the parents. Are you going to follow the child's lead, who is now a ward of the state and thinking the way the state has been, uh, ha- is prescribing everybody think? Because, of course, if you think this way, it empowers the state to go out there and micromanage everybody's lives economically, socially. They can break things down by race and gender, and they can ingratiate however the hell they want. So if they get people thinking this way, it automatically empowers the state to go out there and be the coddling nanny, the wet nurse that all these socialist, useless people are asking for. And, and parents, in turn, have to make a choice. Am I going to follow my child's lead and support them in all of their state-prescribed delusions and be a good, a good team player and post on my Instagram how I'm, uh, I'm so happy that you know, one thing or another is happening to my mentally ill child and uh, I'm going to do everything I can to make it worse? Or are you going to stand up to it and say, absolutely not, and then become a pariah? And God forbid, even have one of your children go and dox you on TikTok like we've seen happen. Thankfully, uh, this woman was able to avoid all that as well. Who knows how rocky it was in the interim, though. 
I had felt I had to teach her how she was wrong and expose her to do uh, that with everyone who didn't see things correctly, Rockwell said. The professors encouraged alienation from parents and even offered their homes to stay in. They'd say things like, don't go see them. Come stay with us for the holiday. Most of my classmates believed all this stuff, too. If you didn't, you were ostracized. Her mother, Melinda Rockwell, told the Post she believed that her daughter had been brainwashed. She admitted that during one heated argument at the family's Palm Beach, Florida home, she threw a vase through a window in anger over what had become of her daughter. In addition to costly deprogrammer, she also enlisted help from her daughter's former tennis coach, Scott Williams, but was warned it might take several years before Annabella could revert to her old ways of thinking. It was like walking a tightrope, Melinda Rockwell said. I couldn't push too hard or I'd lose her. But if I let go, I felt like I might not see her again. It was as bad as trying to get a child off the streets who's on heroin. Everyone is so sure it won't happen to their child, but it will. Professors and older students tell the students that they are special. It's like they are anointed. Then they tell them how how oppressed they are and what victims they are and how they have to go out into the world and be activists to stop the oppression. This is how they actually, how the KGB and, and all of those uh, those Bolshevik crazies uh, first indoctrinated those earlier generations of American college professors. And then, of course, we have the Weather Underground, the bomb makers that became the professors afterwards. Everybody just changes up their, their methodology. But um, they, they would invite American professors, they would be invited out to places like China and the Far East and places like that that were controlled by these commies. They were invited out there because they were the best of the best, because they were the brightest in their field. And they, we, we want you to come and join us in this very exclusive seminar and whatever. And they would play to these people's, these intellectuals' egos, and then send them back with all this Soviet uh, Bolshevik programming back into the United States to then go and disseminate it, just like you would get... You, you would corrupt priests in the seminary. It's the same exact thing. And it's, of course, the same exact source, which is why we talked about as well that the sexual abuse in public schooling far outdoes any of the horrors that we have learned about with the Catholic Church and the Vatican uh, over the years. Far out, ex- far, far out exceeds that. But, of course, it's a lot more... It's a lot easier to attack the church because that also suits another, um, another uh, big tenant of the commies and their demoralization pursuits, and that is burning out the connection that people have to God. So that's why that is prioritized over talking about, you know. Anyway, another former Mount Holyoke College student, 29 years old conservative activist Laura Loomer, uh, spoke to the Post about what the co- campus culture says uh, says that she's left after one semester uh, freshman due to you know freshman year to due to bullying. The entire cult- culture here revolved around hating men and being a lesbian. Loomer told the Post. Mount Holyoke and all the seven sisters schools, including historically women's colleges, Bernard, uh, Bryn Mawr. Smith, Radcliffe, Vassar, and Wellesley, uh, Wellesley, I don't know that, Wellesley, Wellesley, whatever, I'm never going there, were designed to be these elite institutions for women at the time when places like Harvard just took men, but they no longer are places for ideas and debate and well-rounded education, they're centers for indoctrination. 
If you send your kid there, you're signing them up to hate the patriarchy and white people and the founding stock of our country, she added. It's a bastardization of higher education for the sake of weaponizing naive young women for the sake of advancing a toxic agenda. Annabella Rockwell, who worked for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign after graduating with a history degree, credited her mother's relentlessness. Here's the quote. If my mom had not kept harping at me and not given up, I know where I would be right now, Rockwell told the Post. Mount Holyoke met its match in my mother. If it wasn't for her, I'd probably be living in Massachusetts, working for some super progressive politician, hanging out with people I had nothing in common with except ideology and drinking all of the time, and I'd be miserable. But I'd be too stubborn to look at myself in the mirror. I had really humble I had to really humble myself to admit that I was wrong, that everything I was told was so hypocrit- hypocritical. She also said that her views began to change during the 2020 George Floyd protests. My social media feed was an echo chamber of everything I had been taught at Mount Holyoke, Rockwell said. Everyone had the black square and it was just all no justice, no peace. But I was starting to think to myself, why are we burning down businesses in the name of empowerment? How is this helping black people? It just doesn't make any sense. It just began to click in that moment about how hypocritical it was. And Rockwell, who now fundraises for conservative advocacy groups, PragerU, like PragerU, said her intention is not to smear other classmates, recognizing how they were all young and impressionable in a campus environment where diversity of opinion was never allowed. So, I mean, there's plenty here, plenty, plenty here for my next guest to talk about. And she has been a guest here for a long time. We have we have Robin McCutcheon's website that is in the description of this episode. We've had her on many times in the past to discuss all types of things, especially uh, college campus culture and uh, the holidays and current events. We have her back here tonight. I cannot wait to hear what she has to say about things. Robin, how you feeling, my friend? I'm doing good. Can you hear me, Frank? I can hear you just, just fine. Yay. It's great to, and it's good to see that you have. Uh, every time you, I, I get in touch with you, I feel like there's a new um, lava lamp or something in the background. We're, we're we're starting to match up with our vibes more and more, and I love it. Yes, yes. Well, I've got my Christmas colors, blue and green, and I've got my um, hanging magnetic lamp thingy that just twirls around it's very cool i feel very tesla like <laughs> yes yes and my my dragon is over there just so that your audience knows the dragon is still here oh yes oh no doubt mm-hmm. about it well you know what let's let's talk about this this first thing um because i think it would be a great way to kick into everything else as a college professor who's on the front lines of all this stuff what did you think about this deep programming story Oh man, I identified with that young woman. Um, but for me, it was not a gender studies class. It was a philosophy class. And um, my philosophy teacher had me so twisted up in knots by the end of the semester that I think I, I think I might have shifted over towards atheism for a few a few minutes. Um, and it, it was absolutely devastating to my parents because they were they were very firm solid christians and they were just outraged that this philosophy professor had been able to in one semester twist everything i knew or thought i knew about god 
and what I what I'd been brought up on in the Bible and just twist it into a great big knot and then shred the whole thing and you know send me on my way um, but it also did not help that at the same time I was taking this philosophy class I had a principles of macroeconomics teacher that was a very very firm uh, feminist and she bought into hook line and sinker to the patriarchy has oppressed you and and like the young woman in the story i kept looking at my life going i'm not oppressed my my parents have encouraged me to take on any challenge i wish to and and the more men that were in the field the more that challenge should be taken on and and just show the men you know who is the smartest woman in the room so i i i ended my first couple of years of college very confused and and luckily my parents were very patient with me. We spent a lot of time talking, um, but but it, it took a good 10 years to break out of all of that programming, all of that brainwashing and get myself with my head back straight on my shoulders again and knowing who I am inside. So yeah, I, I fully identified with that young woman and I was, um, I was, once I realized what had happened and how the whole thing had rolled out, I was very upset with myself that I had allowed that to happen to me. Um, so yeah, I, I'm glad that the mom took, um, took the whole thing in her hands and worked with her daughter to, to bring her out of that brainwashing and that programming, because it can, it can be very deep and dark. And that whole cut your hair off thing, that's a total power and control move, total power and control. And, 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 that, um, and, that, and that sounded like it was school. It was school wide. She was discussing. It sounded like something that you would do when you join like a, a sorority. A cult. Yeah, a yeah, cult. yeah, cult. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and I, I can tell you that at colleges and universities all over the country, that kind of programming and brainwashing takes place. I have um, a friend. And maybe put friend in quotes. I have a friend who's a sociology professor at Marshall. His whole purpose for Sociology 101 is to completely brainwash and program as many students as he can into the critical race theory, leftist, Bolshevism, communism is great ideology. That's his whole focus for that one class. And, and, uh, he takes great big swaths of the students and turns them into mushless, brainless, monkless. I like that one yeah. you talked about earlier. Um, <laughs> we are without monks. And they're, they're just automatons by the end of the semester. And so I told him, I said, for every person that you do that to, and I find out that you are the professor, I will work doubly hard to deprogram them when they get to my class. And, and, and what does they what does he say to that? Is that is like a it's like oh, okay challenge accepted like this is a game? Yes. It's like it's, yes. like, it's life or death. It really is. Yes. And how? I know. And I told him I, I said you're not going to win this. I will win. Well, let, let me let me ask you about that because um, I, I've I've even felt that too in, in the four years that I was in um, in, in in school. I wasn't nearly as really plugged in. I was kind of 
yeah, I just coasted through. I was a little bit more ex- uh, a little bit more focused on social uh, social things and l- making friends. And you know, I, I joined the radio club, and there's just things that were going on. I was still in a band the whole four years in, in college, so there was I, I was I was occupied. I didn't really get right. involved with any of the, but I knew that there were people that were just sucked in. I remember getting um, yes. I, I I got uh, if I had some. If I could relive some encounters, they probably would not have gone as as smoothly as they are now because I know it was happening to me. But I was definitely pushed to the the fringes of that agnostic front. I don't mm-hmm. I don't ever think that I was I saw myself as an atheist. But uh, they they uh, that that whole time of my life was very very comfortable in saying I don't know. If then again, you feel invincible, then you feel like you got your entire life in front of you. Nothing can take you down, and that the the whole concept of God is something that you don't even need to think about right now anyway so who cares but right as far as but obviously i i was on my own path but do you have any stories about children uh students that you have saved that that they were one way and because of you 180 and they saw the logic in what was going on that in a way where there's no way that they can be uh you know turned back around that they couldn't be tampered with again um, I spend every semester in my Atlas Shrug class um, using class exercises to help students see within themselves to get past all of those filters that have been built up since they were born into this world so that they can see with their own eyes a bigger clearer picture of themselves as as a human and um and these exercises that i do are meant to help illuminate for them where they stand in that first week of class i mean what their what their concept of themselves is what their concept of political economy is how have they gotten to the point in that that moment who was some of the primary um i I don't want to call them builders but who were some of the primary movers in their lives and we focus a lot on mom and dad and siblings and close family so that they can realize that their their closest filters to themselves the filters that they would define as me um or or them Mm -hmm. in this case that those those filters for all intents and purposes were developed not just be not just by them but by all of those close family members around them mom dad grandma grandpa um, brothers sisters younger older and those those first seven or eight years are not just formative they the filters that that build around these people our children are almost impenetrable almost impenetrable they can be broken down and changed and um I often will have uh, men or women in my class who are on the Army ROTC or they're headed into the military 
and they know that the military has a very particular way of breaking down all of those barriers so they get all the way down to the basic you and then they build you back up in the way that they want you built up um so i spend i spend a lot of careful time helping the students get into touch with who they are as a as a human as a man or a woman and um and when we get done with looking very closely at how they have um at how they've been raised that i make very clear to them that however they are is perfect they're they don't have to be any other way but how they are right in that moment and that whatever mom and dad did they did with the best of intentions because our parents love us you love aurora clearly you and lauren love that little baby so much that you do things for her that you know are exactly what she needs to have in those moments. And you are helping her form herself as a human so that when she grows up, she's got that tough shell around her of love that you have built for her. It's a little bit like building a pearl, right? You put layer upon layer upon layer over this teeny tiny little bit of a stone and all of these layers are built with love. And that's what I want my students to realize, that everything their parents did for them, that their grandparents did for them, they did because they love that little baby that is now sitting in my class as a 20-year-old. And, um, and my students go from there to now looking at the political economy, communism, capitalism, free markets, with the view that they're going to be looking at a different way of running an economy. And whatever way they're standing, while they're looking at it, that that's okay. I'm not trying to change them. I am trying to get them to see who they are as a human and let them know that however they are, for me, I'm okay with them. I don't want to change them. And because I'm telling them, I don't want to change you. All I want to do is show you a smorgasbord of all kinds of different ideas that you have probably already been told are either good or bad. Mm. But I want to show you the whole picture and then you choose. You choose what you want. You choose the life that you want. You choose the people in government that you think will represent you the best. And um, and most students by the end of the semester, um, they shift their opinion. They go from thinking communism and socialism is, eh, it's probably okay. I mean, it looks really good on paper to, ew, oh, that's what it really looks like. Mm. That's, that's in it, it, changes their viewpoint um what i do and how and i measure this every semester at the beginning of the semester i think i've told you this once i have them do the politicalcompass.org test it's a test of 64 questions that kind of 
um, measures all the different socioeconomic, political economy kind of stances that people take, and that's our baseline. And I collect all that data from them and store it away. And then at the end of the semester, they take the same test again, because just like in a blood test, you need a baseline test to find out where are you standing. And then at the end of the semester, we measure it again. And the differences are dramatic, very dramatic. And I show them, I, in fact, we just got done with that today. Our, this was our last class. And so they got to see the beginning and the end. And then I show them all the classes that I've ever done this with. So for the last 22 semesters. And, um, and it is a very dramatic moment when they say, oh, I'm not the only one who's changed my opinion about things. Oh, that's good. But then they realize how much they have changed, shifted their viewpoint from communism and socialism probably being okay to, oh my God, really what I want is free markets. Mm. I want to be free to make my own choices. I don't want someone at the local level or at the state level or at the federal level telling me how to live. And I tell my students, and every semester today was no different, that every semester I teach the Atlas Shrug class, communism has inched closer and closer and closer. And I said, this semester, it started out on our front doorstep and it ended up in our living room. And, and I asked the students, I said, can you see this? Do you see that this is what's happening right now? And all of them were nodding yes. And some of them looked a little uncomfortable because what can they do? What can they do? Right? So, so yeah, so all of this deprogramming that I, that I do with my students, it, it comes back just in ACEs at the end of the semester because it's such a slow process that I take them through. We use a lot of critical thinking. Um, I remember when um, Kathy O'Brien was on your show, she said one of the exercises that she did was she would write in cursive her thoughts so that she could re-synchronize um, her brain so it would think logically. Well, for me, it wasn't so much writing in cursive, it was actually doing math that resynced my brain so that it was um, turned around back onto the, to, to the straight and narrow. Because for me, doing math is a very logic um, critical thinking, intense exercise. And so um, I threw myself into calculus class, just, you know, full bore, get my mind off of these other things that this philosophy professor and, and this uh, macroeconomic teacher was trying to get me to swallow. Mm. And um, math saved me. So it wasn't necessarily what Kathy O'Brien was doing with the, the cursive writing. It was, it was math that saved me. You know, and I and I, I, this that's just such an incredible story, and it's not even a story. You're just talking about how you conduct your work, and it's, I love it because I, I, I right off the bat, I knew where you were going with this, with talking about where just first letting kids know your students, young adults know that you are, um, you're coming from a place of love, 
that I'm not a resp- I'm not a replacement for your family. That whatever you have going for you right now, you're exactly where you need to be. Yes. That is so important when I was thinking about it because you have at that point done the complete opposite of American education by and large by stripping identity out of the equation instead of making identity the only thing, personal identity, group identity, the only thing that you are using as a lens to solve problems. And now in in, in, in that respect you you encourage people to let their guard down. They're no longer making decisions for a nation. They're not trying to fix history. Um, they're they're just they're just chilling out and being logical about this stuff. I, it's it's so brilliant. It really is. Oh well, thanks. It's um, yeah. I I, th- I actually think, and this is going to sound. I, I should grab my tinfoil hat. I asked God before every semester as I'm as I'm putting things together, I ask him to show me what I need to know to help the students that will be in my class that semester. I completely let the semester behind me go. I don't don't spend any time thinking about a semester in front of me. I focus only on the semester that I'm in. And before every single class, I, I send a prayer to please give me the best and most appropriate words and the best and most appropriate energy for the students who will be in class. Let them know that the entire room is filled with love, that that as humans, as somebody's child, I love them because I love my own children. I love my own children without bounds, just like I know you love Aurora. And I want my students to know that they are the most precious people in the world to me. And I, I, without me saying it, without, you know, going around, throwing hugs everywhere, I just want them to know that I so appreciate them taking time to be with me, even though we've got some work to do in a class. But it's the time that is most precious to me. It's not necessarily the economics that I'm teaching, although that's important. It's that as a group, we can think through some of these problems that are facing the students really, really bad problems. Like, how do I help my mom and dad make the mortgage payment? How do I help my mom and dad, um, you know, survive in this economy? What, what do, what can I do that is going to be helpful to my family? And so my whole, my whole everyday purpose is just to to do everything that God tells me to do with my students as much as I can love them that's what I put out there um, so you know I'll, I'll put my tinfoil hat away I know that sounds really kooky but um, I've gotten insights about these students that I don't think I would have ever gotten at all without the help of the Lord. And I'm I'm not not trying to be a Bible thumper today. I'm really not. It's just that ideas for running a particular class, how to say certain how to say certain things so that the students can actually hear it. Because you, you know that old saying, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Yes. Well, when the teacher is ready, 
the student appears. And and I've had some harsh lessons from students. I've I've um, some of my harshest lessons, most humbling um, times in my life have come at the hands of a student who, whether they knew it or not, was um, filleting me like a fish because I wasn't listening. I wouldn't hear them. And so, and so I found that if I would, if I would just pray before I go into the classroom to do and say and have the right attitude for my students so that I could hear them, so that I could, um, so that their problems that they were having, they could talk with me about and maybe, maybe get a solution or maybe just have someone to talk to. Mm. Um, I had a student this semester, um, three weeks into class, I, I walked into class a little early and he was sitting all by himself. It was just him. And I, and I looked at him and he looked really sad. And I said to him, I said, Morgan, what is, are you okay? Is everything okay? And he said, I'm so sad. He said, my girlfriend just dumped me. And, um, you know, she said, it's not me, it's her. And, you know, two weeks ago, we were madly in love. And yesterday, she doesn't give a shit about me. And I said, I said, I am, I am so sorry to hear that. And I said, that's, that's, man, that's really tough. It's rough. And he, and he goes, he says, I just, I don't know what to do. And so we talked for a few minutes. I laid everything aside, put everything on my desk and I walked around and, and I just listened to him. I listened to his worries and I listened to his pain. And in that moment, I, I thought to myself, dear God, what am I going to say? And all of a sudden I knew. And I said, I am so glad that you told me these things. I can't help you with your girlfriend. I know exactly what you're going through. And I know that it's, it's heart-wrenching, it's painful. But I want you to know that I am so glad that you are here talking with me. I'm just so glad. I'm so glad that you're in my class. Every time we have class together and there you are and you're sitting there and I just want you to know that I care about you and I'm so glad you're here. Well, he, he stayed in class. He looked a little bit better. Um, he came to class for the next several weeks and then he was gone. And he wrote to me and said, after about a month, he said, I want you to know that you helped me. You saved me. I was going to go commit suicide. Mm. Now, he did get help. He did. I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but he went to get help. And who knows what would have happened if I had just, you know, well, the poor student, whatever. You know, yeah, we all go through that. I, I've been through that. It, do, do you see? Every day as I'm going to, as I'm driving to school, I'm praying. Before I go into class, I'm praying. I just, 
I just want my students to know that there's somebody on campus that cares about them for who they are. I don't want them to change unless they want to. So, so you know, I know that's a that's <laughs> that's a far story from where we started out with the the mom who's trying to save her daughter and I really I get that. It's very very I relevant. I was that daughter once. It's very relevant, Robin. I, I it's very relevant stuff. I I, I just got a text message from Lauren. And Lauren said, I wish I had a professor like Robin. College kids so need more people like her. And it's true. I mean, this just this approach, and I'm sure that there are there are, are, are many people out there like you who are taking this approach and are just obviously overwhelmed by the, the, uh, the black cloud that has been cast over all this stuff. The, the, mm-hmm. the, the reason why we need deprogramming as a, a viable option for saving children after college. I mean, that yes. used to be like, oh, we're going to college. It's time to get on with life. You know, this is the prepared for the big world. Instead, you go there and they break your knees. Yeah, it's they kneecap you. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yeah. And you know what? I, I think I think honestly, if I were to be maybe a little kind to my colleagues, I other than the one friend who does this on purpose, I don't think that too many of them know exactly what they're doing. I don't think they realize the the hurt and the um the mental anguish that they are causing their students. And, and to me, every student is precious because every student is somebody's child. Yeah, I know, they're grown up. They're 18, 19, 20, so what? They're still somebody's child. And, um, and their mom and dad are not there to protect them. Their mom and dad have trusted us, the faculty, with the care of their their young adult children and I, I take that responsibility really seriously hmm. at the end of the semester i want that young adult child to have come out of the process of all of that squeezing and energy and thinking and i want them to come out of that process more whole more complete um a better human for having known the people in their class and for having known the professor than they were on day one of the semester. So, you know, they're, I've met parents and, and they're worried. They know that they've, I mean, they've seen it, maybe with some of their older children, maybe with children of, of friends of theirs, and they're worried about sending their, their kids off to college because they can see what's happening, and, and I'm sure they don't like it. Yeah. Um, but most of my students report back to me. I, I stay in communication with a lot of them and they report back to me that their parents or they'll bring their parents to me to meet me to, for the parents to say, thank you for thank you for looking over my child. Thank you for caring for them. You know, like I would have had I been here. So I think it's I think it's really um, I think it's incumbent on, upon parents that when their children get to that age that they're thinking about sending them off to college, to don't send them very far. Keep them a little close to home. There are good schools. There are good state schools. And, and if I was the parent, I would go and visit. This is going to sound crazy, but I would go and visit every professor 
that that child has on their class list. I would go and 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 check them out as much as I could. Use that Rate My Professor website so you can see what the professor is like from the student's point of view. Um, I've I've even told students, please invite your parents to come to class with you. Bring your parents because they're paying for this. That's unheard either of. Either through their tax dollars or right out of their pocket. Bring your parents so they can meet me. So that when you talk about me to them, they have a picture of this mug in front of them. That, and, Robin, to, to think about how we have we have heard the protesting of of so many so many uh, uh, teachers, how they didn't even want parents anywhere near the Zoom sessions that were going on in 2020. Right. Wow! And, and for you I to know. be inviting them to the classroom, they did. They, that's just in, incredible. That makes me wonder what the hell's going on here, you know? So, yes, well, that's, that's, I mean, it's it's a scary place. University is a communist system, right from the structure right from the foundations up and it's going to take it's going to take the finger of god to change it and um and i will be looking forward to those days when we can when we can shed the skin of communism out of the university system out of the k-12 system and replace it with something that's a lot more free markety much more um much more loving well, with that, free markets, and I, I this is going to be, a, well, I had a couple of, that was a wonderful, wonderful um, segment. I know, that we did. it's not what you wanted to talk about. No, it, it, it certainly is. I mean, part of the, t- the title tonight is College Deprogramming, and I knew that that, that article was going to be a, a, a door opener to a wonderful conversation with you. But uh, now shifting gears just a little bit, I wanted to talk, since we're, we're still within earshot of of uh thanksgiving black friday from a you know we're talking free markets we're talking about quarter four we're talking about uh we're talking about economic calendars and all that stuff and i wonder just from a historical standpoint i know that it's about black getting into the black that it's the uh it's the it's the 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 big shot the big shot heard around the world. Christmas shopping season is really kicking off, and this is where a struggling economy can have its last big shot at not being in the red at the end of the year. But uh, you know, from somebody who teaches this stuff and knows the ins and outs, I was just wondering if there's if there's any cool things you can let us know about the history of Black Friday or or anything that 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 goes on around this time of year from a historical standpoint. Well, the first Black Friday wasn't even next to Thanksgiving. The very first Black Friday was September the 24th, 1869, Hmm. when two um, rogue financiers out on Wall Street, a guy by the name of Jay Gould and Jim Fisk, cornered the gold market. And they ran this uh, gold buying scheme and they bought and bought and bought all the gold they could because they wanted to prop up the price of gold. And on Friday, September the 24th, the entire thing just completely caved in, like a house of cards that came tumbling down. And so that was the first Black Friday. So it had nothing to do with Thanksgiving. Okay. 
And then in the 1950s, which was um, some time before you were born, um, in Philadelphia, the Saturday right after Thanksgiving was the big Army-Navy game in Philadelphia. And so people would come from miles around, they would flood into Philadelphia the day before the game, which was Friday, the Friday right after Thanksgiving. And there, there were so many people coming into the city of Philadelphia that there were not enough policemen to take care of, you know, pickpockets and people who were thieves. And so the Friday after Thanksgiving, the day right before the Army-Navy game, um, got a bad reputation for being a black day for merchants because there were not enough policemen around to um, make sure that their that their stores were not pilfered. Wow. And so it got it got a really bad bad reputation. But the thing that happened was cities around Philadelphia, like up in Detroit where I'm from, they they noticed this. All of these people coming into town the day after Thanksgiving to spend their money and it was during a period of time when the um, American economy was flourishing. People had money in their pockets. World War II was over. And so people around the country began, especially merchants, began advertising for Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. Finally, a, final, a positive, finally a positive way to market this yes. name. Jeez. Yes. And so by the early 1960s, this had... This had gone from Philadelphia and it spread out east, west, north, south, everywhere across the country. And so we begin to see by the end of the 1960s, this not a big push, but a concerted effort on the part of merchants to make Friday right after Thanksgiving a big holiday of buying. And people would come from all over into the big cities. Um, I remember in Detroit, it was the Hudson store, which is now not there anymore. And people from all around the suburbs, four or five counties out, would they would all drive into Detroit and they would go to the Hudson store and they would see Santa would be there and they had eight or nine different floors, you know, lingerie, menswear, et cetera. And it was just a big party. And so, so we moving we move through the 1970s we have we have a, a bit of a recession a bit it was a big recession um inflation takes off friday after thanksgiving now becomes a more crucial day for the merchants because especially in the high inflation years it was really tough a lot of times a lot of merchants that that my family knew they were literally in the red before Thanksgiving. And so they looked forward to that day to really push the merchandise. And um, and some for some merchants, that was the day they went from red to black. They went into the profit part of, of their business. Um, and so it became an even bigger uh, commercial merchandising day for everybody. But it really took off in the mid 80s. <coughs> After our, excuse me, let me have a drink of coffee. No doubt. I should have made myself some coffee myself. <clears throat> After the recession of the early 1980s, that's when Black Friday really took off. 
you had stores opening at six in the morning, five in the morning, four in the morning, midnight. You get into the early 2000s and stores are, they're opening at 10 o'clock on Thanksgiving night. It was crazy, absolutely nuts. And then COVID came and all the stores shut down for Thanksgiving, at least in our area. So many people were, thank God for COVID because we get time with our families and the crazy hours of opening, that really cut back. No, 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 we're not opening at midnight. <laughs> we're not opening at five. We're gonna open at a reasonable time of seven o'clock in the morning on Black Friday. And in our area, all the stores shut down for Thanksgiving. So everyone could go home. It's, you know, I, I'll tell you this, and that's another reason why I was so excited to talk to you about this in particular, because here we are in 2022. I know that this is this is a story that now now I know this is a story that, that spans from the 1860s to right now. And in this latest chapter, so many reports from all over the place, because I was wondering, you know, in, in years past, we'd wait for a new Mark Dice video of him showing up for these long, crazy Black Friday lines and, and you know, making fun of people in a Santa costume and all that. And now there's all these reports of Black Friday lines just non-existent. It's all, yeah. it's all Cyber Monday. But this year in particular, as you said, I know that... It wasn't that people are just, obviously people are a little bit more hamstrung. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of depression. There's a lot. There's a lot of. There's a lot of significant reasons why people aren't going out and just spending money. They don't have charging everything to the card and all that. But still, for for the lines to be gone. Uh, but juxtaposed with the fact that people are getting back together with their families, I okay. think that that is a uh, a very interesting dichotomy there. Very interesting. Um, so, so what do you think? Do you think that's something that bounces back ever, or are we firmly in the grips of Cyber Monday? Because I, I, you know, there may not have been a lot of people camping out on Black Friday, um, but I, all the reports I heard is tens of billions of dollars in sales. The biggest, uh, the biggest online sales day in 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 history. Now that we are firmly in the digital age, you think this is just what it is, or there's ever going to be a bounce back? Boy, I don't know. Um, in our area for Black Friday, the mall opened at five o'clock in the morning and families went together to the mall. Hmm. That was their thing. That was their, um, they might not have been buying, maybe they just went to see the Christmas sites, but they went as families. I saw on the news, I saw so many packs of friends that all of their families went to the mall and they all met up in the food court and then the teenagers went off in one direction and the parents went off in another direction but they're all going to meet back and have a meal at the food court and they made it a day of of being with the family some people were doing secret santa shopping um but it was it was so good to see whole families together even if they weren't buying anything i mean it, it was just it made your heart sing i i think that 
at least in our area, I think that this whole COVID thing has really allowed people's attention to be riveted back to family, to mom and dad and grandma and grandpa, because so many of our families, at least now with um, COVID having rolled through and now a lot of people with, I hope I don't get you kicked off YouTube, but a lot of people have had these, you know, injections mm -hmm. and, um, and it's really taking a toll on people's immune systems. Um, I think that that people are beginning to realize that that's what they did to themselves, um, whether well-meaning or not. And I think that it has, for a lot of the families around here, it has it has drawn them tighter together because because life is so precious, and we and and we don't know right we don't know if our if our loved one is going to be with us at christmas or not yeah and so i think for a lot of families around here they're they're realizing what has happened and while they may be um they may be a little bit terrified it has had the effect of bringing them back together and solidifying that family unit and and you know bringing the extended family back into the circle of of familial love so i think it's for us i'm seeing good things even though there's a lot of um there's a lot of bad health things going on in our area too so um but i but i'm i'm firmly convinced that the silver lining here is that people are seeing it and their reaction is not what the globalists wanted the globalists wanted us splintered and all over the place and not together. And the exact opposite is happening. Families are coming back together. There, um, a lot of families are setting bygones to be bygone, and um, you know we're gonna we're gonna get through this together. Um, so I don't know what's going on in other people's areas, but that's what I see here. Um, so it's, I think it's a good thing. And hope and hopefully. Uh, and hopefully in about another 10 to 15 years, we can start really feeling the impact of uh, a whole new generation and a half of children who have been properly homeschooled. So, exactly. so I mean, wait until you're sitting around the uh, the Thanksgiving the Thanksgiving Day uh, dinner table there, and you're not right. you're not just counting on your 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 old crotchety uncle to say all the things you want to say. The kids are going to be saying it. That'll be great. That's right. <laughs> I, That's right. Oh, I hope. Oh, please. Right wing Uncle Tony is is the only one at the table. Well, now he has some backup on the way. That's, That's right. He's got all of his nieces and nephews going. Go Tony. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Um, it's eight. It's eight eighteen. I I I'd love to take this to eight thirty with you. And can we do one more thing? Can sure. we talk about the Mike Rowe article that you sent exactly me? Exactly why. That exactly what I was asking for. I want to spend at least the next twelve minutes on this. Let okay. me let me read it. I'll read read a little bit for the audience because it gets right to the point. Mm -hmm. Mike Rowe, um, the the old the old. Um, the old host of Dirty, Dirty, Dirty jobs. jobs, a guy I would love to have on this show. He's a wonderful talker. He's a wonderful storyteller. He's so calming. I love that guy. He's got a great voice. Um, Mike Rowe, he issues a warning about hideous workforce trend, and I'm going to put this up on the screen right now. 
and I'll put Robin up there with me too, and we'll read it through together. A ma- this is from the Western Journal. A massive sinkhole is opening up under America's economy in the form of Americans who have no interest in getting a job. Mike Rowe is warning. Rowe was interviewed Thursday. This was on the 18th, uh, a couple weeks ago, on Tucker Carlson Tonight, and said that for years the country has been experiencing a quote slow sort of unraveling of what we loosely call work ethic, and now he says there is a worker a worker shortage unlike any other. Here's a quote. We're in a place where 7 million able-bodied men are not only not working, they are affirmatively not looking for a job. That's never happened in peacetime ever. Rowe uh, touched on an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal by economist Nicholas Eberstadt that talks about the flight from work. Quote, economists like Nick Eberstadt have taken a dim view of it. They're worried and they're trying to inject that into the conversation at a time when we are still looking at the unemployment numbers as a true harbinger of what's really going on. We're looking at the wrong thing, though. We're looking not at what it means to have a bunch of people unemployed, but what does it mean to have a bunch of opportunity that nobody gives a damn about? Wow. I mean... There's more here about about uh, statistics, ages, and, and all that other stuff. But thinking about that right there, a collapse not only in not in employment but in work ethic and people who want to seize opportunity. Robin, what do you? What the hell is that problem? Well, further on in the article, um, Roe talks about the extraordinary um, efforts that. The, I believe it was the Trump administration took in sending COVID cash to everyone, right? There were two or three bump outs of cash, um, $1,200 or $600 or something, and that, that kind of got the ball rolling. But it wasn't just that. It was that states all across the nation then started paying people extra money over and above the normal unemployment to, um, I I don't know, to keep people in cash. But what all of this um, extra unemployment money did was it made made for people who were out of work, it made them uninterested in going back to work because they were making more money on unemployment than they could at the job. And in fact, in the summer of 2021, um, most of the people who were bouncing back and forth from job to unemployment, they would literally go work for two weeks or whatever their state required. They would have a job for two weeks and then they would get fired from the job and they would go back on unemployment. So the states have done this to us. Um, and they have incentivized people to not work. Micro is quite correct that we've never seen so many millions of, I bet it's not just men, I bet it's women as well, who are uninterested in going to work. But there's something else that Mike didn't talk about that I think that we need to. And that is, if you go to, if you use one of your computer screens and go to openvares.com, that's O-P-E-N, V as in Victor, A-E-R-S dot com, you will see that 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 is the vaccine adverse event uh, reaction system website that the CDC requires 
the um, pharma companies to post reactions to their vaccines. And if you are looking at the front page, you're going to see um, wow. something like 2 million people who have had adverse reactions. Now, this is just to the COVID vaccine. This is no other vaccines, just the COVID vaccine. And you will see a number of about approximately 42,048 people dead. Now, this VAERS system, um, the number that, that the numbers of dead and injured in this system, we know is underreporting. By up to 99%. By almost 99%. So take that 42,048 and multiply it by 100, and you come up with 4,204,800 people who have probably died from this vaccine. Now, what was the number? Micro said you've got 4 million people who are in the workforce. They're, they're not sitting in front of their TV, they're six feet under the ground. At least a good portion of them are. Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, I mean that's inside. That's inside of uh, a very, very large margin there, and it's yeah. Geez, so I now here's another thing: um, the Society of Actuaries uh, at the end of 2021 began noticing some really disturbing information that was coming out of insurance companies that they were working with. At the end of 2021, they noticed that quarter three and quarter four of 2021 was showing an excess death rate in the 18 to 64 year olds. Now that's our labor force because beyond 64, most of those people are retired and they're not working, even though they, they may be able to work. But from 18 to 64, the Society of Actuaries noticed a 40% excess death rate. Now, to give you an idea, a normal pandemic would have an excess death rate of about 10%. Now, if you take that, that, that data and you look at what happened in 2022, quarter one and quarter two, so January through the end of June, and you look at the um, cohort, the 18 to 25 and 18 to 24 and the 25 to 44 cohorts, that excess death rate is almost 100%. Now that is a, what number did I see? That is a 12 sigma event, which means if you're looking at a normal curve, it's so far out to the right that it's, it's the probability of that happening normally is zero. So we have, we have been giving, um, I, I say we, but I don't mean me or you, those injections are causing massive amount of harm and death. And, and so micro is right. There's not enough people, but I don't think it's because they're sitting in front of their big screen TV. I think it's because they have some kind of a debilitating disease or they're dead. Uh, we should also, uh, we should also r roll into this that the fact that of two to after two years of being told that you don't have to go into work, you can stay home, you can be on any kind of uh, financial assistance, we have had 
I, I, we can't even count how many American cities now have rolled out these so-called universal basic income pilot tests. Uh, so yeah. th- there are there is a factor inside of this where that where government, uh, whether they, it be federal or local, regional, state, they are trying to ride that wave of people who have become complacent just by you know habit at this point. There is that factor that has to be accounted for. Sure. I I agree. There is that. And um, the government really, really wants everyone to be dependent upon them for everything. In our area, our local area, um, most of the most of the people want to work and they're out. They've got a job or two or three. In some cases, Um, students, most of my students work part time. Some students even work full time. There, um, so, so I don't know what's going on in the big cities, but in our tri-state region right here, people are looking for work. There, there are not that many. Um, there's not that many people satisfied with the government taking care of them. Hmm. Do, does that make sense? Yes. They're, they're put out. They're quite put out by um, the idea of taking a government handout and being satisfied with that. Well, so let me ask you this, Robin, uh, from an economic and a statistical uh, standpoint, what mm-hmm. let's let's take micro uh, micros 4 million number or so. Uh, then let's also go to a what you had brought up before, which is a such a, such a, a big thing that cannot be discounted because whether you take the 42,000 confirmed uh, deaths that are directly right after somebody got one of these shots, and you talk about, and this is an this is where the, the government works off of theirs, and and for Harvard to come out, and I think believe it was Harvard that that even said that it theirs is only one uh, to ten percent. Uh, on a high level of what is actually going on. So then you have your margin of error. And as you said, the margin can get as the, 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 the situation can be as severe as 4 million people dead. But let's say that it's just a million and a half to 2 million. Uh, they're still around the world, around the world, millions, millions of people who have been injured and harmed either temporarily or have lasting neurological problems because of it, things that would stop you from working in a uh, a warehouse, things that would stop you from taking up a lot of different things. You, so you have to think about uh, under the umbrella of what these experiments have done to people, there's so many ways for people's ability to work, especially physically demanding jobs, to, to be able to keep up with uh, demand. But if, if we're talking about mass death, when do those, I mean, why would those, uh, those people be counted in the statistics that Mike Rowe is working off of? Um, you know, at what point does a dead, is a dead person not counted in as people not, uh, alive, able-bodied, and not looking for a job? When are they taken out of the statistics? That's, that's my question. So um, the Bureau of Labor Statistics has a what they call a birth death model. And in it, they are estimating the number of people who are born and the number of people who die. And they're using, um, as far as I know, they're using mathematical models used by the Society of Actuaries to predict the number of people born and the number of people who die. Now, that model only works 
as long as the rates of birth and death don't change very much. You you put in a 12 sigma event like this mm. one for the bears, that's going to throw everything off. There that models that model is going to be so inaccurate. You you couldn't predict anything. And we already know that the unemployment rate is a total bogus number anyway because it does not take into account anyone who is not working and not available and not willing to work the the 99 million people who are in the not in the labor force because in order to be unemployed you have to be part of the labor force so you have to be over 16 and either willing to work or working or looking for a job but if you're not looking and you're not working, then you're not even in the labor force. You're not even counted as as unemployed. You're you just gone. Doesn't matter. So we've got we've got a labor force of about 164 million people, roughly. We've got roughly six million people out of that bunch that 164 million, there's about 6 million people that are unemployed because they don't have a job and they're still looking for one, which means we're not counting fully a third of most adult people, everyone over the age of 16 who's not looking and not working. Hmm. So um, it, the the numbers that, that the government, that the Bureau of Labor Statistics advertises for their unemployment numbers are they're they're about as bogus as pyrite. Maybe being fool's gold. Maybe one night, maybe one night when you come on, we have to do a special segment on the differences between the U three and the U six numbers. Yes, I and the U six number is still not even accurate. Um, John Williams uh, has a website, Shadow Stats, um, that I that I go to look at, not with a lot of frequency, but a little bit. And if you go to shadowstats.com and you go under the um, tab for um, unemployment, you'll see that his figure for unemployment is somewhere around 18%. But I think that that's still too low. I think that we are looking at across the country an unemployment rate of probably 25 to 30%. Jeez. That's... And if you if you take those 99 million people that are not in the labor force and you lump them in with the 6 million people who are unemployed, you get an unemployment number of somewhere like, let's, what is that, 105 million divided by something like 164 million. So what is that, about 37% unemployment? That's the true number. That's how many are truly unemployed. That's incredible. Well, that's that the the reason the Bureau of Labor Statistics came up with this bogus way of counting was so that whoever was in office wouldn't have it hanging over his head how bad the unemployment really is. Oh, I'm um, sure I'm sure they would want some people to have it hanging over their heads, but if they blow the bubble on one person, everybody else is going to have to handle it the next time. Exactly. I mean, Trump couldn't blow the, I know he was, he was patting himself on the back left and right about, you know, the low unemployment numbers. And I kept looking at this 99 million going, uh-uh, but he's not going to blow the whistle. He's not going to tell anybody how the numbers are actually created. And he knows he's a businessman. Don't give me this. You know, I like the guy. I think he's a great president, but, um, you know, he can blow hot air up somebody's skirt, just like, uh, 
the potato can. So right, right, right. You know, and, and this also, this also makes me think about other things because when you're talking about how to other little ways to cover up a scam, especially if the scam has to do with massive amounts of death. That are are obviously you can't you can't cover up everywhere because you're seeing here excess death. It, there, there's this gigantic swell in statistics. Um, the first the first industry to be able to say uh, to, to to throw to be the canary in the coal mine was the life insurance industry to start seeing right. all, all those claims coming in 44 percent increase uh, across you know uh, otherwise healthy working aged uh, people. So you're like, what the hell is this all about? And But then at the same time, especially since so much of the statistics that we work off of officially from this government is done from the census, uh, worked off of the census, we know that the census, A, you have no, there's barely anything that they do, they want everybody to know, we're not gonna ask your immigration status. We just right. we just want to know how many warm bodies are in this country. So as people are dying off and they're importing warm bodies that are being counted in the census from across the southern border, it actually statistically might shake out where there's no real big discernible difference in population. Uh, maybe it shakes out. I, I don't know. It's just there's so many ways. I just don't know. There's so many aspects to this um, problem that it's it's difficult to get your arms around the whole thing um because as an economist when i'm when i'm looking at a model as an economist i i'm i'm holding a lot of things that normally move around i'm holding them still because mathematically they you get you get too many moving things in the model and you don't know what caused that change in the dependent variable right so a lot of these models that the Bureau of Labor Statistics is using are designed specifically so that there aren't too many changes in not too many independent variables so that when they're looking at that that change in the dependent variable, the outcome, the result, they can say that that change in that result is due to this one variable over here. That's not real life. That's not how life works. So. There's so many moving parts to this that I don't think we're going to know for a decade what's going on. Well, we're, we're just not going to know. Let's pray that we get that in a decade. I'll tell you that much. Okay, Rob. Well, if if we can get them to stop, if we can get the government and the FDA and the CDC and the NIH and the NIAID, and if we can get Fauci to shut his forking mouth and stop these jabs, then we will be a lot, lot, lot farther off, better off. Well, that... In the meantime, we must. Sorry, we must didn't all, mean to throw the F word at you. Hey, listen, forking is. I should start using that. Actually, yeah. people would be a lot more. People would be happy if I start saying forking instead of the other thing. But um, for I, I know that there's been a number of people asking whether or not you have a website. I know that we have link sync.com. I have that in the description of the episode. I always do when you're on. But on this website, because I can't remember the last time I was actually on it, is there a you know a blog of yours? Do you keep up with it? Like do, do you do you commentate on on things going around the world or so? Because I think people would really like to just keep up with your your um your digesting of current events, especially especially economic and cultural. Is that on LinkSync? Um, you know, that's an interesting idea. I, I don't actually have a blog on there. I've been 
listen, I've been trying to fly under the radar as much as possible, right? Because when I when when we started our website, we were running a conference on free markets. And free markets is not something that you just go around saying, hey, I'm all about free markets, especially if you want to get tenure. Right. Yeah. So so I got tenure and I um I got a promotion to associate, but I still had to fly under the radar. Um, I just was recently promoted to full professor. So maybe having a blog might be okay because now I'm um, bulletproof. Well, you should definitely go out there and see if robinmccutcheon.com is available or something like that. <laughs> something like so. So a blog sounds like a good idea, but if people will go to my website, they'll find a link for all of my radio and internet interviews with you and Sean Brooks and Dave Chanda. And there's a new guy up in uh, Clarkson, Michigan, Jesse James with Dangerous Info. Yeah, I know Jesse. And um, and then I have um, all of my economics lectures in the classroom. And I have my freedom lectures, which are all my Atlas Shrug class lectures so people can go and enjoy it but but i'll 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 ask my husband about you know you maybe i don't need to fly under the radar quite so much and you know we could do a a blog thing i'll although you know a lot of it's going to depend on you know how far above the bush do i want to actually shove my neck because Sometimes those swords get pretty close. So. I know, I know, I know, I I know. I understand. I, don't, I already irritate people to within an inch of their life at the university. I've I had those people on the rocks and the coals last year when they tried to mandate the jab at my school. I I had I had the university council and the president tripping over themselves to not mandate the jab because I came at them full force. I've, I've not kept my mouth shut the whole entire year since the jabs came out. And um, because I, for, for myself, I just wanted to make sure that I told as many students as I possibly could that these jabs were poison and please don't get them. And because I just, I, at the end of my life, when I stand in front of God, I want to be able to say I did everything I could to save as many of my students as I possibly could do. And I didn't care how many people I irritated or pissed off, which is why me getting promoted to full professor was kind of a shock. Oh, well, but it was I, I, a nice shock. It's a good shock. And I'm glad that we're still capable of delivering shocks these days. And you deserve it. And I, and I hope that this does give you a little bit more reason to uh, to, to blog. Because I, I do think that people out there would really appreciate small okay. small little things from you explaining, uh, you know, the, the, the really how intricate the numbers that make up unemployment are and, and how everybody's taken for a ride and how it's a weapon used by all major political parties that need to be understood better by people. So um, that's that's something I think that the that's something else that the world needs outside of your classroom. So consider it okay. and let let me know if you need any help with the website. Maybe Lauren will do some stuff for you. Something nice and simple. Oh, you guys are so kind. Thank you. If um, I'll I'll talk it over with my better half and we'll see what we can come up with. All right. Well, it's it send my best to your better half, and I will. I shall. I will talk to you soon, and it, hopefully we have you call in or something before Christmas because um, I want to talk about these rum balls that we are going to be making over here soon. Remember, you got to let them sit and marinate, and don't give any to 
Aurora. No, no. No rumballs for Aurora. None. None whatsoever. <laughs> Thank you, Robin. It's always wonderful when you're on. Thank you. Merry Christmas to you and your family. And I love you. And please tell the Twitch chat that I missed them tonight. Oh, oh, so oh, so you're you that is your domain. That's where I hang out. With the cool kids. Damn it. I'm With the cool you. kids. All right. That's right. All righty. Well, thank you so much. We love you too and, and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. I didn't know that Robin was a Twitcher. She's one of them Twitchers. Oh boy. Well, that was that was tremendous. I don't know I have um I have some thoughts on this a little bit more on the the theories and the the Kanye stuff. I don't know if we have time for it now, but I have to go on a break, come back, get to your super chats. I might have to save some stuff for either tomorrow or Friday. Because tomorrow we got the judge on in the second half of the show, who knows where we go? Actually, maybe that actually might be good to talk to the judge about people like Kanye. Especially when it comes to the um, intelligence aspect of it, he's he's he he's no fool. He knows all about MK Ultra. He knows all about, especially how black men have been used and and indoctrinated into this stuff. What am I thinking? This would be perfect. Anyway, you're watching me produce the show into a completely new direction. But then again, I might ask him a question and it goes nowhere. Throws up a brick wall. Just not, we'll, we'll roll the dice. Roll the dice, but what a wonderful appearance from Robin McCutcheon. And ladies and gentlemen, I'll be back in just a moment. I need to get uh, my ducks in a row for the last portion of the show. So don't go anywhere. It's the last day of November. This intermission changes tomorrow. Can you believe it? Welcome to Intermission. We'll, we'll be right back. Yeah, Intermission. Quite frankly. 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 Quite Quite frankly. 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 So everybody watch, quite frankly, with Frank. Quite frankly. Oh, 
dare you. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, so happy to have you back, but remember the fun doesn't end tonight at nine o'clock. It does not end. If you are on quitefrankly.tv, which I hope you are, and we are going to be encouraging that more and more, uh, we are going to kick off Rabbit Hole Wednesday. We are showing a video release yesterday that has been making the rounds, decoding the Balenciaga images. That'll be first one up. So get on over there right now and get yourself ready for that whole experience. Followed by Abe's best videos and memes of the month, then wrapping up the late night with three-part Michael Jackson deep dive video series made by Frank's friend and eldest brother, Razorfist. I wish he were my friend. <laughs> I've been trying to make friends with Razorfist forever. It's very, it's very tough to do, by the way, uh, because you don't want to look like a psycho. So every once in a while, I wait three or four months, invite him back on the show, all that stuff, and... Whatever, one day, one day we'll break through the ice. I was this close, but you know, things with Skip were getting so bad around the time that I had he and George scheduled for the show. And I just, I had to clear my schedule a little bit and just be at the hospital. But um, one day, one day, uh, either way, if you have not seen this three-part Michael Jackson uh, deep dive by Razorfist, you got I'm going to be watching um I'm going to be watching Rabbit Hole Wednesday tonight all night especially when that three part thing comes up because we were talking about three videos that anybody out there would be very hard pressed to to dispute that exonerates Michael Jackson that n that never never goes goes easy on the fact that uh that he is a a victim of the most abusive industry that the world has ever known had his childhood rooked, was rooked of a childhood, was abused, was, was, uh, you know, but, but this is, you'd be hard pressed to uh, dispute this. So I, I definitely would say go and watch, Ra uh, not just Razor Fist, but everything that Abe and the the, uh, the crew has gotten together for this evening, on, on the network. So. I'll be in the chat room. I'll be seeing you guys there. I have to go and get my dinner settled first. Uh, what else did I have to say? There was something else I wanted to say. Something that, that happened? So, oh, oh, thank you to everybody who was on DLive last night after the show. Mike and I were in the, the music room and we did a major successful sound check on the drums out there. We, we, we fixed that latency issue so that the music I was playing along with was not so far separated from the sound that was the signal that I was sending out of my drum set. So uh, we're getting closer and closer to iPod jams and then larger band nights. Um, not even just set the charge. We're making it so that it's going to be easy for any musician to come in here, plug and play again, and we can be able to do it. We've got new, we're working on lighting, getting the room nice and cozy, better camera angles. So thank you everybody on D Live that gave us about five minutes of your time. It was it was it was a good 
a good thing. All right, into the Super Chats we go. Stostube, a wonderful, thank you so much, Stostube. We love you. Um, Chef J. Kinney says, Hi, Frank, just made one of my favorite Cajun shrimp with bacon and borson grits. That sounds great. I love your recent show with John Paul Rice. Very enlightening. Definitely bring him back. Keep up the great work and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. I can't wait to unveil our Christmas schedule, our guest schedule, the topic schedule. I've got Jay Dyer coming on. Jay Dyer is coming on to talk about how Christmas and Santa are not pagan. We're going to get that. Uh, We're going on to a few other things. Who else did I? Oh, John Paul Rice will be coming on to talk about uh, Frank Capra and It's a Wonderful Life. Chris Ann Hall, I'll be bringing back. I, I'll be bringing uh, Chris Ann Hall back on the night that we do O Night Divine episode again. That's the episode that I love reading. That uh, that story, that that legendary story about Washington's prayer in the woods, George Washington's prayer in the woods, and have Chris Ann Hall uh, come on to to make us all cry. And then, um, oh man, my the family episode for me and my father, my mother. I told my brother, I told Lauren. I said, "We let's get let's get a, a babysitter and let's you come too." That'll be on Friday, December twenty third. That whole last week is going to be beautiful. The week before that, that's where Jay Dyer will be. I'm trying to see if I can get uh, Timothy Gordon to come in there as well, and much much more. I've got things in the works. So, Shao Khan says, Hey, Frank, sorry for being rude yesterday. Turns out I popped into the wrong decade. What are you going to do? You have a great show. Loved your interview with John Paul Rice the other day. Got me thinking that maybe Liu Kang isn't just an annoying little punk. No. Liu Kang, he was the savior of our realm. Go easy on him. So was Johnny Cage. Erica Berica says, Anomaly was a fantastic guest. Great vibe and energy. Please have him back. Also, can we get Robin's rum ball recipe and post it somewhere? Great show this week, Frank. Much love. I'm going to have to get her recipe again and repost it because I did repost it a few weeks ago so people would have some time to do it before Thanksgiving. I forgot who in the audience had sent it to me with a review of how it came out for her. But it came out great. But then I took that review, I reposted it, and I sent it to my sister-in-law. I said, hey, let's do this. Because Lauren and my sister, whose birthday is on December 21st, uh, Lauren and her sister, uh, they always do, I'm sure some of you, you people out there do the same, but there's always one big baking extravaganza day in the lead up to Christmas where the whole day it's just cookies upon cookies so that you can make all of your gift trays and save some for yourself. So I said, well, listen, these rum balls, we got to do them uh, before Christmas. If we do it on your baking day, then that'll give us just enough time, a few days, to let them just sit and soak so that I can pop a few on air over here and get drunk with you all. That's the other thing I have to tell you all, that on December 17th is going to be our Saturday night special here in the studio. So I'm going to try to get a nice cocktail that we're all going to be drinking that night. I'll get that recipe out when, when we pick it. I have a, a sponsor for the evening already lined up. i got to ask them what the 
what the uh, the recipe is and i'll even let you know the link to their distillery so you can go out and buy their stuff if you wanted to and prepare with me so it's uh i want to know i want to be have a fancy nice time every december you know you know so that's that's that all right so thank you to everybody that's watching all over the place and now let's go to foxhole captain flint sends a cookie switch rod says bought a bronze tier subscription wow well now you are a monthly subscriber switch rod that means that starting the this december tomorrow so this weekend you will get your first you will get your first um unlisted sunday live stream link in the mail in email email of course and everything else uh amarillo says i didn't know what a favor i did for myself when i decided not to attend college great show frank yeah yes especially if you didn't want to be a brain surgeon or something like that sean joe thank you p quest thank you keith s guad good thank you keith njsf thank you so much and thank you for the nice email today sean joe river pike just because bob says if you're having a family night you have to bring aurora yeah but i go live at seven o'clock and aurora goes on most nights down for bed by seven so get her into her room around seven seven fifteen and she rolls over and she is out by seven twenty, and then we don't hear from her until lately like 6 45 in the morning but it used to be in she, she stretched that out you know what it is it's fall back it's all the changing of the time but right before we changed the 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 clocks she was sleeping until 7 30 7 45 it was awesome i don't know how we, it's just weird it's just what you can't tell a baby hey you have an extra hour to sleep tonight by the way go good for you they're on a different schedule. They don't understand where the hell they are. I'm sure you, many of you parents out there already know this. I'm all f figuring it out. Still. Uh, all right. It's 8.54. I'm saving all of this um, Milo and Kanye alternative theories type of things for tomorrow and or Friday. I'll spread them out. But you have a couple of minutes now to get over to quitefrankly.tv and join your night there. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. And I'll be there in that chat room with you before you know it. Albert Frederick just says, all the monks were on meth. Now you want, all the monks were on meth, he asks. Now you want to be, uh, you want to hear something really fucked up. LMFAO. Um, so awesome, so awesome, and no one should be able to see right through that shit piece. And sorry about the ass blast. I can't say I've ever gotten Massengild. I haven't gotten Massengild on a slide. Oh, oh, you're talking about the, the, the water slide douche that we were talking about on Saturday? Got you. It's okay. It's all right. Yeah, I know. Seriously, there's something about that monk thing. There is no way that you are able to get all of the monks in a temple, a Buddhist temple, to go along with taking methamphetamine. Every last one, there was no dissenter whatsoever. What's the real story there? Come on. So is it is it uh, just contaminated water? Is it runoff? Is there a meth lab somewhere upstream? I don't know, but that is a 
there's too many questions I still have, and I'm sure we're not we're not going to get a follow up. It's the first and last time we'll hear of that, unless you guys and gals see something, then send it my way. All right, that's all I have for you tonight. Thanks again, Robin McCutcheon, for spending time with me here, and I am looking forward to another big day tomorrow with another great guest and uh, the greatest audience in the world. No doubt about it. It is grateful for you guys and gals every day. So is Lauren. Uh, and one day Aurora will be too. Thank you. And please become a sponsor of the show for as little as a dollar a month. You can go to the Sponsor Us tab on quitefrankly.tv while you're watching all of tonight's extended program. Uh, and and that is, it. that is it for me. I will see you soon. Buy some merch. Patronize our affiliates and be well keep the pants off too nighty night i'll catch you on the flip side quite frankly is filmed before a live studio audience and now our super chats Calling uh, super chatters starting with albert frederick stostube chef j kinney Shao Khan, Erica Barica. Thank you to everybody over there on Foxhole. I'm going to be releasing the scratch in right now. And please tip your studio engineers for the rest of the evening. I'm sure Abe and everybody else will be very happy. Support the network, my friends. We want to do more with it in the new year. All right, that's all for me. Good night. See you tomorrow. <laughs>